Good morning. Our first reading this morning is from Genesis 15, 1 to 6. That's on page 10 of your Bibles. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abraham. Abraham, I'm your shield, your very great reward. But Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliza of Damascus? And Abraham said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abraham, Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Our second reading is from Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, page 8, 27. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms of Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Thanks, Mario. In uh, 1522, in March, so nearly 500 years ago, a printer named Christoph Frauschauer was printing a new edition of Paul's letters in Zurich. So it was Lent, just before Easter, And you know how some people today like to give things up for Lent, so you see people give up things like chocolate or Facebook even? Well, back then, the church commanded that you had to give up meat. And if you ignored that command and and ate meat anyway and got caught, you could be arrested for it. No joke. I mean, imagine it. You're there in jail and you say to someone, so what are you in for? And they say, you know, I murdered 10 people. They say, what are you in here for? I ate some, some meat. Imagine the, in the, the prison yard, they'd be like, keep away from that guy. He's, <laughs> he's out of control. He ate meat during Lent. He's capable of anything. I mean, for us, it's so hard to understand, isn't it? We, we can hardly get our minds back to the world back then because it was such a different place. 
the church had invented all sorts of rules and the government enforced them. So back to Christoph and his printing. With Christoph and his workers was a man named Ulrich Zwingli, or Zwingli, if you're from that part of the world. Now, Zwingli was the people's priest at the great Minster Church in Zurich, a building just almost as impressive as our own. Now, he, he had a pretty important role there, actually, and he was known for his amazing preaching from the Bible. Instead of accepting the kind of traditional church interpretations, Zwingli would go back to the Bible's simple meaning. And instead of, you know, jumping all over the place in the Bible, Zwingli would start a book of the Bible and preach through it till it, he got to its end. And we do that all the time here. We're not doing it today, but generally that's what we do. We really value it, but back then that was radical. So Zwingli was there with Christoph when they served up to the 12 workers at the printing press some Swiss smoked sausages. Here's a picture of those sausages. Not the actual sausages, I know they look 500 years old, but um, that's the actual kind of sausages that they served up. Now Zwingli himself, he didn't actually eat any himself, but he probably helped serve them up. Now remember, it's Lent. So eating meat or sausage, which is pretty close to meat, was illegal. And of course, as you'd expect and hope, uh, the town council came and arrested Christoph for his terrible crime. Now, Zwingli, in his important role as town priest, could easily have smoothed things over and got Christoph um, off, uh, out of trouble. But instead, Zwingli does the opposite. A week or so later, he jumps up into the pulpit and he preaches a sermon titled this, On the Choice and Freedom of Foods. In his sermon, he says, Don't make what man has invented greater before God than what God himself has commanded. You should neither scorn nor approve anyone for any reason connected with food or with feast days, whether observed or not. Now, for us today, this isn't really that controversial. But back then, it was picking a fight with the church. Because Zwingli was saying that the authority for how we live lies in God's commands given in Scripture and not in the thousands of commands that the church gave. The Bishop of Constance, who lived nearby, wasn't impressed at all. So he sent a, a delegation to Zurich. But again, rather than smoothing things over, Zwingli did the opposite again. He printed his sermon in a pamphlet. There are two principles that broke, uh, that sorry, drove what Zwingli um, drove his rationale for making this fight a public one. Two principles. The first one was scripture alone, and the second one, faith alone. Zwingli was 38 when this fight broke out, but since he was about 14, he'd been on a journey where he'd come to see that God in scripture should tell us what to do and not the church and tradition. Zwingli wrote 67 statements of belief, 67 articles, and the very first one goes like this. All who say that the gospel is invalid without the confirmation of the church err and slander God. Zwingli and all the reformers came to see that because Scripture is the Word of God, it's the highest authority that you can possibly get, and it, it doesn't need to be confirmed or 
authorized by the church. In fact, the opposite is true. The church is confirmed and authorized as it comes under the authority of Scripture. Now, because Zwingli believed in Scripture alone, like all the Reformers, he came to believe in faith alone. Zwingli saw that Christians are right with God not because they observe church rules or rituals or religion, that's not what makes them right with God. Christians are made right with God as they have faith in God's promise given in Jesus. Zwingli lived by these Reformation ideas of Scripture alone and faith alone and because of them he fought for Christian freedom. Today, we're going to focus in on faith alone. Later on in the year, when we come back to this series, we'll have a look at um, Scripture alone, and we'll also have a look at Christ alone, and next week, we'll have a look at God's glory alone as well. But today, we're focusing in on faith alone. Do you remember, though, last time we did grace alone, um, we saw that salvation comes to us by God's grace, and we saw that Luther rediscovered this as he went back to the Bible and as he saw that his own effort, even though he was a, um, a monk who'd get up at, at 4am, no, 2am I think it was, and do ridiculous amounts of services a day, five services a day with meditation, all of that, he saw that his effort was never going to save him. Well, like Luther, Zwingli also rediscovered this. In fact, all the reformers became convinced that salvation is by grace alone. And the Bible, of course, is crystal clear on this. Have a look with me at what God says to us in Ephesians 2 verse 1. Paul writes, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Now, we'll never fathom just how deep God's grace is until we fathom just how deep our predicament is. Paul says, from God's point of view, we're as good as dead. Our transgressions, our sins have made us dead to God. And Paul goes on to say in verse 3 that all people are in exactly the same predicament. He writes, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Paul says we deserve God to be angry at us. He says it's it's not just understandable that God's angry at us. Paul says it's actually the right way for God to feel about us. Our nature demands it. The thing about being dead is there's, there's not much you can do to help yourself. In fact, there's nothing. And that's Paul's point. We're lost with no hope and we deserve what we get. But Paul introduces us to the greatest and most striking paradox in the universe. We're dead to God. We deserve His anger, but verse 4, but because of His great love for us. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. Who can understand this? Who can understand the mercy that God has on His enemies, on 
people who live as if they wish he weren't there, as if they wish he were dead. To these people, God shows great love, rich mercy, unfathomable grace. Paul's incredibly careful in this passage to make it crystal clear that our salvation is only by God's grace. He says it three times in this bit. Verse 5, it's by grace you've been saved. Verse 7, he saved us so that he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. And verse 8, for it is by grace you have been saved. Three times in a really short bit. It's crystal clear, isn't it? We're saved by God's grace alone. Luther rediscovered that. So did Zwingli. All the reformers did. But here's the thing. In some ways, God's grace was never denied. See, at least you wouldn't read back then that, no, you're not saved by grace. You'd never find that written or said like that. You would always find we're saved by God's grace. But what was meant by that was completely different. How God's grace was denied was in how it was understood that God's grace came to us. So, salvation is by God's grace, yes. But how did you receive that salvation? And then once you had it, how did you keep it? The church in Zwingli's time ended up denying God's grace in how you received it and in how you kept it. Even today, you still come across these same ideas alive and well from time to time. Like in the Catechism of the Catholic Church from 1992, it says this, justification has been merited for us by the passion of Christ. That's completely true. Jesus' death merits us salvation. But how do we receive it? How do you get it? Keep reading. It is granted us through baptism. Or in another place, it says, moved by the Holy Spirit and by charity, we can then merit for ourselves and for others the graces needed for our sanctification. Grace is received through baptism and maintained here through charity. Jump back 500 years and you find the exact same ideas, like at the Council of Trent, which said about penance as a means of regaining grace and justice. Penance was at all times necessary for those who had defiled their souls with any mortal sin. How do you receive God's gracious salvation? How do you maintain salvation? Well, the church in Zwingli's time and some churches today say by baptism, by communion, by penance, by all sorts of ways. And it's not just one denomination that does this, by the way. I was on holidays um, and I went to an Anglican church, so my own denomination. And as I was sitting through the sermon on Mark, all about the gospel, all about how we're saved by God's grace. I was there thinking, this is fantastic. This is great. Until there was just one sentence that undid it all. Because the preacher said, the way God's grace comes to us is by the font and the altar. In other words, you receive God's salvation by baptism and by communion. The way we think we receive God's grace can completely undermine His grace. Paul tells us very clearly the only way 
we receive God's grace. Look with me at verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved. And how do you receive it? Through faith. Salvation comes to us by God's grace and we receive it only through faith. Not through rituals that the church insists on. Not through rules. Not through our good works. In fact, not through any contribution, cooperation or any effort from us at all. Salvation is received by faith and it's received by faith alone. When you stop and think about that though, logically it has to be that way. Because as soon as you add anything to faith in God, you undermine faith in God. Because you start to have faith in something other than God. Faith in yourself or faith in your church or in the rituals or rules that you follow. But Paul's point is that if we're dead, we can't save ourselves. We can't cooperate or contribute to our salvation. Look again at the next part of verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. Paul's very careful to make sure that we really hear that salvation comes completely from outside ourselves. Yes, we receive salvation, but we receive it through faith alone. The whole deal, our salvation and even our faith, is a gift from God. Now, but it's not the kind of gift that you work for. Do you know that kind of gift? You know, like when you help someone move their entire house, the fridge and the washing machine and the wardrobes and everything, you can't walk for a week after it, and then they give you a box of chocolates as a gift. Now, that's a gift that you've more than earned, right? (laughs) It's not a gift like that. In verse 9, Paul says it's the opposite kind of gift. It's not by works so that no one can boast. It's more like the gift that someone gives you if you've had a heart attack in the street and you're lying there and a stranger comes up and performs CPR on you and saves your life. That's the kind of gift. See, as you're lying there, there's not much you can contribute, is there? There's nothing. That's the kind of gift that salvation is for us. Faith is what joins us to what Christ has done. It's how we receive God's grace. And it's a very simple thing. It's a relational thing where we trust God and His promises to us in Jesus. It's actually like you're caught in a hostage situation and a terrorism you know, response police officer bursts in and says, get behind me, hide behind me. What does faith do in that situation? Well, faith hides behind the officer. What faith doesn't do is try and drag a table along as well, just in case. You know, the police officer says, what are you doing? It's like, well, I trust you, but I just can have a little bit of my own protection as well. That's not faith. Also, what faith doesn't do, Paul says, is boast. So imagine you make it outside behind this police officer and a journalist meets you out there and says, who saved you? I mean, who's going to boast and say, oh, I saved myself? You should have seen the commando role I did to get behind that police officer. And then, you should have seen the way I cowered behind him like a real man. If we've understood faith properly, then we'll see that faith is simply us cowering behind Christ. You can't boast in it. 
It's just us taking refuge in Christ. We receive God's gracious salvation through faith, that kind of faith alone. The Bible's crystal clear. We're a church that knows that, celebrates that, and loves that. But the church in Zwingli's day denied it. They denied this truth. In fact, have a look at what the Council of Trent said in response to the idea of salvation by faith alone. This is how they responded. If anyone saith that by faith alone the impious is justified, in such wise as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to the obtaining the grace of justification, and that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the movement of his own will, let him be anathema, cursed, excommunicated, cut off from the church. That was the church of the day. Zwingli's preaching from the Bible and and standing up for Christians to be freed from man-made rules from the church, it led to greater and greater changes in Zurich and greater and greater conflict. As you can imagine, the corrupt church at the time and the Pope didn't like these changes at all. They were actually trying to force the town magistrates to hand Zwingli over to them and hand back control to them. So almost a year after the whole sausage incident, or the sausage affair as it's called in history, the town magistrates of Zurich decided that they would call a public kind of disputation, a public debate between those who wanted to reform the church and those who wanted to keep it as it was. The bishop sent his representative, Johann Faber, and Zwingli represented the other side. And the issue was whether God's Word or human tradition would be the authority in God's church. 600 people crammed into the town hall. Here's a kind of painting a little bit later of that. Johann Faber, he started his opening address by saying that he wasn't really interested in debating. He said the place for that was in a church council with bishops and with scholars from the universities. And he wanted the universities like Paris and Cologne to be the judges of the truth. Zwingli was a bit of a character, if you haven't figured this out by now, and a bit of a stirrer as well. So he suggested that maybe the judge for the debate should be Wittenberg, which was Luther's university. Johann Faber didn't really take that too well. He wasn't impressed by that. So then Zwingli responded by saying, you know what, these 600 people here represent a Christian council. This is the only council we need with Scripture as our infallible guide. These are his words. He said, there are in this assembly many Christian hearts taught doubtless by the Holy Spirit and possessing such upright understanding that in accordance with God's Spirit, they can judge and decide which party produces Scripture on its side, right or wrong, or otherwise does violence to Scripture contrary to proper understanding. Scripture alone, through faith alone, we are saved. These are the things that drove Zwingli. And in the end, Zwingli won that debate and the town council ordered, this is shocking stuff, that the clergy, the ministers in Zurich, should only prepare their sermons from the Bible from that point forward. All those things that the church had added in, man-made rules, extra things needed to receive and maintain salvation, they were scrapped 
dissolved. Things like penance, celibate clergy, worshipping saints, purgatory, monks, forcing Christians to eat, to not eat sausages at Lent. All of those man-made things they got rid of. As Zwingli saw, God alone has the right to command us, not the church. And God gives His commands plain as day in Scripture. So, 500 years later, how does faith alone speak to us today? Well, first, it says, if you're unsure about your salvation, where should you look? Not to yourself, not to your performance. You look to Christ. The very act of looking to Christ is faith. Yes, you know, faith in Christ changes us. Yes, it it leads us to doing the good works that God's made us to do. But these things, they flow from our faith in Christ. They don't flow from anything else. It's only as we see our place before God as unshakable. It's only that we really get that our place in God's family is permanent because of what Jesus has done. It's only then that we can start to do the works that He's prepared for us. Otherwise, the works that we would do would not be from faith, they'd be from self-confidence, which is exactly what got us into God's um, being angry at us in the first place. They would just be more works of people not trusting in God. See, our obedience to God doesn't save us. Instead, it flows from our salvation, as we saw in Ephesians 2 verse 10. Paul says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. The amazing thing about Christianity is that you can know 100% that you're right with God. Have you ever thought about that? You can know 100% that if you died right now, that you would go to heaven. And that's not arrogance. Because we don't think that based on how good we are. Instead, it's based on our belief that without Jesus, we deserve to face God's anger. But with Jesus... We never will. Christians should be the most confident and yet the most humble people on this planet. Have you ever thought about that? We should be the most confident and yet the most humble people around. And this brings us to the second thing faith alone speaks to us today. It means for us, as Paul says, that it's impossible for us to boast. All of us at one time were dead. All of us, at one time, Paul says, served God's enemy, the devil. If anyone is saved, it's only because of God's great love and rich mercy, His his unbelievable grace. Is this reflected in how we live and in how we think? You know, based on how we treat others, what would people conclude about our God? That He has great love? rich mercy and unbelievable grace? Or would they conclude that He demands performance before He accepts us? That He's cold and unforgiving? 
You know, if we've benefited from grace and received it simply by faith and nothing else, then let's be people who show grace without strings attached. The final thing that we're going to look at today that faith alone means for us is freedom. We have freedom from man-made religion. Can a Christian fast during Lent? Yes. Can a Christian command others to fast during Lent? No, because God doesn't command it. And insisting on anything that God doesn't command rips our faith from God and places it into something man-made. Can a Christian speak in tongues? Yes. Can a Christian command other people that they have to speak in tongues? No. Can a Christian be a teetotaler and not drink alcohol? Yes. Can a Christian command that another Christian can't drink alcohol? No. Can a minister give you advice about an important decision in life? Yes. Can they command you what to do? No. If we live by these critical ideas, Scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, then we'll know the incredible freedom that we have as Christians. Freedom from God's anger. Freedom from the devil. Freedom from the rules of people. Freedom to live as slaves of God. Freedom to do the good works that He's prepared already for us to do. Knowing that any command that's given to us by God is given to us because He loves us. And because He wants us to truly enjoy our freedom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we stand in awe of who You are, that despite who we are, You've shown us great mercy, great love and unbelievable grace. Lord, help us to grasp just how deep that love is and for our lives to be transformed as we do. Lord, thank You that we can receive Your great grace simply through faith, simply through trusting in Jesus, not requiring anything else to be added from ourselves or to be earned. Lord, help us to be, stand always in wonder at this. Lord, help us to order our lives according to these principles of Scripture alone, faith alone, and to see the great freedom that they bring us. That You have enabled us to live for You, to live in a way that pleases You, but based on what Jesus has done for us as the engine that drives our salvation. Father, we thank You so much for that. Please help us to be a people who overflow with Your grace and to show this grace to others for Your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.